please join me in a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you again for our time together to sing your praise, to recount the greatness of your grace and mercy and saving us while we were yet sinners. You died for us and brought us into fellowship with the Father. We ask, O Lord Jesus, that your name would be glorified in the preaching of the word today, that your gospel would be made known. Father, we do thank you um, for your word, for your inspired word. It brings us hope, brings us clarity, brings us peace, especially in times of great uncertainty, but we can be certain that, that you are God, that you reign, and that you are in control, and that you love and care for us. So may your word go forth this morning in power and grace and encourage your people. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, <clears throat> good to be with you. Um, let's open our Bibles to the book of Second Peter. Been suffering from a throat cold, if you want to call it that, this week. So we'll see how far we get today. We bring, I bring plans to the pulpit of what to preach through, but who knows? So if the uh, vocal cords give out, then uh, you are blessed. I guess the Lord has um, decided that I've said enough, and uh, <laughs> it's time to move on with our day. So we are blessed regardless. Um, but Second Peter, we will continue our study in that today, chapter 3. Draw your attention to verse 3, and we will uh, we'll follow along as I read from verse 3. Uh, let's go through verse 7, since that's what your bulletin says, I think. Second Peter 3, verse 3 through 7. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Let's go ahead and read the rest of this. Let's start at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's a great passage before us. We'll take a few weeks to get through it all. Uh, this sermon's title is The Certainty of Christ's Return. The Certainty of Christ's Return. So we're going to break this down. So I'll kind of give you a lead-in to tell you this uh, outline ahead of time to see how we can break it down, and that'll help uh, guide us going forward. But just a couple, I think, overarching principles of the certainty of Christ's return. We recognize that it is uh, no doubt for the Christian as to that fact. And we will uh, we'll explain why coming, coming up. But we'll break this down into two primary principles. One is the certainty of His promise to judge. When we, when, we, when, we, when we think about the certainty of Christ's return, what certainties, what surety comes to mind? That's the first one. We can be certain of His promise to judge. We'll get through that part of that today. That will cover verses 3 through 7. Second part is this. 
is that we can be certain also of His power to save. That in this coming day of the Lord, in this return of Christ, He not only judges, but He also saves. Right? He can do both at the same time because He is both judge and Savior. So that is what we have in view in the weeks ahead. Those two very important themes of Christ's return. And so we're going to move pretty slowly through this text because for some of you, uh, what I am about to present may be different from the view you hold. For some, it might just match perfectly. And so I want to be very careful and deliberate about how I treat this text. So in the course of our study, we will be going through a lot of cross-references. There is a principle in preaching which says avoid what is called parallelomania. Like, don't just look up parallel texts for, just for its own sake. Let there be a, a good purpose behind it, a beneficial purpose behind it. And so I think for a text like this, uh, visiting many other passages, both in the Old and New Testament, will be immensely clarifying in establishing uh, the particular view from Scripture that I, that I will. But I think we can all agree on one level or the next the, about the return of Christ. It's, it's, going, it's going to happen. The question that comes up with a text like this and what makes a text like this difficult is what return is in view. And I, as I have maintained throughout our study of Second Peter, the view that I've been representing is that this expectation of Christ's coming, this perusia in the Greek, uh, is pointing to Christ's return in judgment upon the city of Jerusalem primarily. And again, broadly, his judgment upon the entire old creation, right? It doesn't just end with the, Juda- the apostate Judaic order. It's the entire old creation in view. And then, of course, as time goes forward, what we are witnessing even in the here and now is the advancement of the kingdom of Christ or the advancement of the new creation. That's why when Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's very deliberate language. And so we are watching the new creation unfold. It's not something that happens universally and instantaneously. It happens universally, but progressively. And so I think that a case can be made uh, regarding that from this text. So once again, there's a lot of uh, parallel passages that we will need to to consult, and I think this is a great exercise in how Scripture interprets Scripture. How do we understand the Word of God? Well, let's see what the Word of God says elsewhere. And that is the primary instrument of clarifying uh, both difficult and more easily interpreted texts. So, let's look at verse 3. Peter introduces the certainty of Christ's return by this phrase, know this first of all. So, of first importance, okay, what's the, what's the, what, what fundamentally do you need to, do you need to keep in mind when we understand the coming day of the Lord? He says, know this first of all. Now, I think it's important that Peter uses the word know here, right? An important theme of Second Peter is knowledge, a deep abiding knowledge, a growth in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge as opposed to speculation. Knowledge as opposed to pagan philosophy. Knowledge as opposed to pseudo-knowledge. Things we may be tempted to make up. Untrue things. Untrue fanciful things that we may conjure up regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And of course, this is something that is 
happening uh, at, at Peter's time with the presence of these false teachers going forth and spewing out their false gospels and their false teachings. What makes 2 Peter 3 so pertinent to all of this is one of the fundamental denials of these false teachers is the return of Christ. That is the return of Christ in judgment. They're saying He is not going to return. He's not going to judge. And here, finally, Peter is able to deal with this very, very specifically. But we can take comfort in something like this because the Christian knows. That's a great comfort to the believer in Jesus Christ. We actually can say that we know and not be condemned as know-it-alls, not be condemned as, pri- as proud, not be condemned as self-deceived. The fact is that the God who makes Himself known to us does so because He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know His truth. And just like the people to whom Peter is writing, He does, doesn't want us to be misled by the philosophies and speculation of unbelief especially that of false teachers. So first of all, know this. What is, what is fundamental to this? Again, and we're drawing, of course, from what he says in the opening verses. He's talking about what was spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and by the commandment of the Lord and Savior, spoken by your apostles. We look back to that. Why? Because that is the very source and precondition of all that the Christian can know. We cannot know apart from what is revealed in Scripture. So that is our bedrock. That is our very foundation. And with that, we can also know, based on what the Lord Himself says, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their lust. So He says, know that first of all. And He points to a very important time frame. He says, last days. He's talking about the last days. Now this is the first of a number of terms that depending on your eschatology, could be interpreted in a variety of ways. So we're finally taking time. I've skipped over this a lot during our study of Second Peter in anticipation of going through it now. So, this term last days is understood in a variety of ways. So within Orthodox Christianity, if you are more of, of, of the dispensational stripe or premillennial stripe, now keep in mind I am generalizing here, you might think that the last days refers to the days that we are living in now. Right? The Bible speaks of last days. These things are happening. Oh, Christ's return must be soon. These are the days leading up to the return of Christ or leading up to the pre-tribulational rapture. These are the things that will characterize life in the tribulation and they'll only get worse. Right? That's it in a nutshell. If you're what they call amillennial, at least when I was amillennial, this is what I believe, the last days are a descriptor of more or less of the entire gospel age, right? Basically, everything that Christ instituted in the new covenant, everything that kind of happened from his ascension slash Pentecost and afterwards, that even right now, we are living in the last days until the consummation, until the second coming. That's another understanding of the last days. A more post-mill view, and this is the view that I will come to to represent and try to defend, would say that the last days that Peter is addressing are the last days, as we've talked about before, of the remaining years leading up to the judgment of the old order, the old creation, especially that which is characterized by the apostate, Judaic, Judaizing order. 
So remember, we've talked about that, how the judgment on Jerusalem that was fast approaching was not simply confined to judging apostate Jerusalem, even though the city was destroyed. But it was a wholesale judgment on, on the entire old creation. And from then on, it's newness. As if the Lord Jesus was making a point that I am making all things new and I am judging the old as a way of demonstrating that very important truth. And so from there, and we're living in it now, the Gospel is going forth, making all things new. That Christ is using His church, Christians, as an instrument of bringing forth the new creation. We talked about this as an eschatology of a victory. I think it's very important to get our time, timelines right. You know, timelines have implications. I mean, I've met countless numbers of, uh, numbers of, of just dear Christians who even now are, are, are struggling a lot with what they see going on in society, going on in the world. And they could, they could probably come up with a dozen things that would lead them to believe that things are getting so bad and that the, the coming of the Lord must be really close. It must be at hand any day now. Some are, are even on, on the verge of despair. They're very depressed because they want Jesus to come back so much. And I think we feel that tension somewhat. I mean, what better place to be than in the direct presence of the Lord? I think once, you know, perhaps the shock and awe of it, you know, being in the presence of the glorified risen Son of Man might incite some holy terror for a little bit. But honestly, that's the heart's desire of every Christian, is it not? To be with Jesus in person. I mean, how awesome would that be? That is, I mean, that is, that is our hope. That is the hope of the Christian consummated. That is, we put off corruptible and put on that which is incorruptible, we will be with Jesus forever. I mean, we all look forward to that, and we, and we say amen to that. that we, we, we love to think of that, at least we should. But what if I said that typically what, what, how this passage is understood as something that is yet future, what if I said that it has already happened, it has already been fulfilled, and we can actually live now joyously, hopefully, in light of that victory. That right now we are living in light of a fulfilled promise. The very promise that is mentioned in this passage. Where is the promise of His coming? Because that's what the scoffers and mockers were saying back then. They're saying it today as well. And there's application there. But think of this. Rather than, this, rather than seeing this as a future event that we're aching for and longing for and starting to wonder, when is this going to happen? We say, no, this has happened. This has occurred. And we live in light of that fulfilled promise. That we are living in light of Christ's victory over His enemies. Now, I'm not looking at a naive triumphalism here. We understand that there are enemies of the Gospel. We understand that there is still apostasy. We understand that the Christian life is a struggle. We struggle through temptation, sanctification, the flesh, tribulation, unbelief, all of those things. And yet, we still can persevere in light of the fact that Christ has fulfilled this promise. That His judging work upon the old order is already moving and has been so for the last two millennia. I think if we understand it that way, we do not have to despair if things continue to go a particular way and suddenly Christ still hasn't come back, we would say He has. Okay? We still await a second coming. 
We still await a date based on 1 Corinthians 15 where Christ will hand the kingdom over to the Father. I'm not denying a second coming at all. But what I am saying is what is typically viewed as the second coming here in 2 Peter chapter 3 has already historically taken place. That means God's Word was true. It has already been fulfilled. And in light of just saying that, I know we're not going to get through much today, and I guess that's okay. But going on here, these last days, want to establish from some other passages in the New Testament, and maybe a couple of old, that this is something that in the mind of the apostles was already on the horizon. It was already happening. They viewed themselves as living in the last days of a particular, you can even call it dispensation if you want, a particular administration, a particular order. We read from the Apostle Paul, and these will be familiar to you. 1 Timothy 4.1 But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now you go on and you read Paul and you realize this is something that's already happening. This was a first century phenomenon. And of course we see it today. We see, we see apostates doing these same things. But we have to understand the audience, the context, that this, was, this very thing was happening in the first century and that's why Paul was warning Timothy against it. If it wasn't going to happen in Timothy's time, then why bother warning him about it? But he specifically calls it the later times. And the Spirit of God explicitly testifies to this. That many will apostatize. And of course, it's happening in Peter's own ministry. See, the, all the apostles are witnessing this falling away happen. Why? Because Jesus warned them about it. Told them ahead of time. How about Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-2? through 2? Be careful to mark these down. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken us to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Not in those last days, in these last days, the days in which we're currently living. These. So we understand the proximity of the days in question. That the apostles in the first century were living in the last days. It's not a future anticipation. It is a present reality to them. Here's another one. We, we, this is a parallel passage. And we understand that 2 Peter shares a number of these verses with the book of Jude. It's even observed by Jude. Verse 17, this. But you, beloved, ought to remember the, Lord, the, the words that were spoken beforehand the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, same thing that's happening in 2 Peter 3. Go back to the source. The holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior. Same source, same witness, same authority. Right? And then in verse 18 of Jude, that they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be, what? Same as 2 Peter. Mockers, following after their own godly lusts. Same people are in view. The same Spirit has infiltrated the church and is leading people astray. Hence the warnings. But the last time is in view. 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 1, but realize this, warning Timothy yet again, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, 
revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then Paul tells Timothy in the first century, avoid such men as these. So these men are already around. Now I emphasize this because this particular passage from 2 Timothy is used very strongly to support a more dispensational view that, oh, in the last times, you read this verse and then you look at society today, this to the T characterizes society today. And you know what? Honestly, I would agree. But it also characterizes first century unbelief. It's not an either or, it's a both and. But we have to acknowledge very clearly from this text that this was something that in the first century was already happening. And that's why he says, avoid such men as these. These last days. And perhaps we can revisit this text uh, later. But a lot of Christians and teachers take this to be descriptive of the times we're living in now. Prophetic language underscoring Christ's soon return for His church. But we have to read this in its context. It's very important. I mean, we see it today. I think so. Absolutely. I think what we see in our own time with you know, false gospels, social gospels, cultural Marxism as we've discussed it before, that kind of unbelief may be unique today in, sense of it, in the sense of its geography. I don't think we've seen it as widespread globally as, as, as we ever have in history. However, however, we also have to understand that the gospel has gone forth to every corner of the world, and so wherever the true gospel of Jesus Christ goes, False gospels, counterfeits, posers will inevitably follow. Simply what happens. That is the response of a defeated enemy. And so we don't want to think that this is confined to some part, of the, part in the distant future, sometime in the distant future. It's already happened. And of course, it will continue to happen. You have to understand, unbelief, Rebellion against the gospel is not very creative. We, waste, we may say, yeah, unbelievers in Jesus Christ, they, they try to be innovative, they try to be creative in terms of inventing iniquity. But on the other hand, it, unbelief is pretty vanilla. As, as people have sinned and rebelled against the gospel in the first century, so they do so today. Rebellion is rebellion. It's what rebels do. And so that has been fulfilled. Now, Consider a passage from the Old Testament. I think this one is very important. Isaiah 2.2 says this, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream into it. Okay, we, we would, I would read this as, a, as fulfilled as well. This is looking forward to the establishment of the new covenant. Well, how do we, how do we establish that? It says, and all the nations will stream to it. What's this speaking of? The inclusion of the Gentiles in the house of the Lord. The mountain of the house of the Lord. Remember this mountain that we read about. 
It's a great, the, mountain is a, the mountain motif is great throughout the entire Scriptures. But this, you, you, you hear mountain, and you think, oh, the mountain, the temple. Now, of course, the days were coming, fast approaching from the point of view of Peter, where the temple would be destroyed. What would be the new mountain? The mountain cut out without hands from Daniel chapter 2. That would fill the whole earth. That mountain is Christ. And all nations, through the preaching of the gospel, would flock to that mountain and be incorporated into the body of Christ. Not only Jews, but also Gentiles. That is what Peter is witnessing as the gospel is going forth. In addition to all the other apostles, Prophet Micah says the same thing in chapter 4, and his time of ministry overlapped that of Isaiah. They're saying nearly the same thing. They're all proclaiming to Judah the same thing. And it happened. The word of the Lord came true. See, this is all connected. Not just, again, not just the destruction of Jerusalem. That's not an isolated event. But it's also connected to the establishment of, of the church, the church throwing down roots, the gospel spreading, again, the advancement of the kingdom of God and the new creation. All that's connected with the undoing of the old creation and the judgment upon apostate Jerusalem. Listen to Acts 2.17. Acts 2.17. This is the fulfillment of Joel 2.28. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. So here you have it. On all mankind, Jews and Gentiles, the inclusion of non-Jews within the covenant community of God. Peter views that in Acts 2.17 as something that is occurring right now. It's not a distant, unfulfilled event. And then we see Peter in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Right? The end of all things is near. Well, the end of what? Not the end of creation or the end of the world. God wasn't going to come in and go, wabam, and everything was going to disappear and burn up. No. He says, the end of all things is, is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Well, that doesn't sound like a, you know, a catastrophic end of the cosmos. No. It, 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 what it signifies is a new beginning. He is going to end this old order. He's going to destroy his enemies. And the new creation is going to be ushered in over time through the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.11 Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Who's our? The church. The new covenant church. Written primarily to a Gentile congregation. And then he says this, upon whom the ends of the ages. So there's another word. right? The end of the ages has, have come. Again, first century expectation, not a future one. So I hope you're at least partially convinced. right? Because I think we typically look at these, we look at passages like these. When we, when we read the end, we typically think, oh, maybe the end of human history, or the end of the church age, or Christ's second coming. When I think the context whole, whole, is very strong on the fact or on the position that this is speaking of a first century expectation. And of course, the church can joyfully live in light of that fulfilled promise. Both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles testify to that very important truth. So that's the last days. Let's move on. What is going to happen in these last days? So we're talking about the certainty of Christ's return. We're talking about His 
His prerogative to judge, right? His promise to judge unbelief. And a couple things I think we can mention if we get through them this morning. First of all, this judgment on unbelief, on, on, on unbelieving sinners will happen in spite of their unbelief. We have to understand that. In spite of unbelief, in spite of the, the naysayers, in spite of the mockers, in spite of the scoffers. And I bring this to your attention because I would say especially today, mockery and scoffing, making fun of things, is seen as a rhetorical skill. Have you ever argued with someone, perhaps in anything, but have you ever preached the gospel to someone and their response wasn't even so much, why should I believe that? They just made fun of you. They just mocked what you said. And yet they never really actually dealt with the substance of the argument. They never dealt with the claims of the gospel. They simply said, oh, you believe that silly stuff? You, you, you believe in that, in that wizardry? You, you believe in, you know, in, in that kind of, you know, whatever you want to say, um, in that kind of naive philosophy, right? Where you say a bunch of un, uneducated, illiterate goat herders, a bunch of uneducated, illiterate fishermen. See, we try to castigate it, we try to mock it so as to cast suspicion upon it. And yet, the claims of Christ being both Lord and Savior are never actually dealt with. See, not only is that present today, it is present 2,000 years ago. That's the first thing Peter says about them. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Why? Because that's all they have. They have nothing to contradict you with. Nothing of substance. Guys, that is why the gospel can't be stopped. No one can bring up any counter-argument to cast down the most important truth that Jesus is Savior and that He is Lord. No one has a response to that. And no one ever has and no one ever will. So what is their recourse? Mockery. Oh, let's, let's make a joke about it. Let's say something so to get other people laughing about it so that I never have to deal with my unbelief. So I never have to deal with my condemnation. So I never have to deal with the claims of Jesus Christ. And I say that to encourage you. The mockery, the scoffing, that is a red herring. That is meant to distract you. That is is meant to make you ashamed of the Gospel. That's all it's meant to do. But it is ultimately a substanceless argument. But that should bring you some boost of confidence. Not self-confidence, but confidence in God. Confidence in His Word. Because you know that ultimately the enemy has nothing. That's why the Word says, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Right? We can even apply that today. That nothing that the unbeliever brings against the claims of Christ can, can, can actually stand. The claims of Christ are absolute. The blessings are irrevocable, and the truth is undeniable. But that is what marks them out, friends. They're mocking. All they can do is make fun. Characteristic of what the psalmist said. Psalm 115.2 Why should the nation say, Where now is their God? And in Peter's time, you know who's saying that? Primarily unbelieving Jews who have rejected Christ as their Messiah. They have become like the nations in their unbelief. Where now is their God? 
Where is the promise of His coming? In Joel 2.17, we read this, Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach. A byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? Where is their God? You know, the first formal debate I ever watched between an atheist and an apologist um, was one where the atheist said at the very end of the debate, look man, if your God is real, why doesn't He just come down here? Because if He does, I'll believe. And of course we know, we know that's not true. Because it already happened. God came down in human flesh, took our sins upon Himself, died, was buried, and rose again. And even Jesus Himself said, you guys won't believe. Even if someone rises from the dead, you're still not going to believe. But it was mockery. That's what the debate turned into at the very end. It was civil for the most part, but then it was just, hey, look, if if what you say is true, why doesn't God come down here right now? That's one of many examples of the unbelief of mockery and scoffing. Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Even in Ezekiel 12.22. See, there's a pattern. Even when the prophets warned apostate Israel and Judah to repent and avoid this catastrophic judgment that was about to come upon them. Same thing. Well, it's is what you're saying true? Or are you, are you really speaking for God? You're saying God says this, well, is it going to happen? Son of man, what is this proverb you people have concerning the land of Israel saying, the days are long and every vision fails? Right? There's a people weary of visions, weary of prophecies. They don't want to hear it anymore. Well, this mockery that goes forth, that this mockery that responds to the Word of the Lord. An expression of unbelief. It's a sad state of affairs when it comes to that. And yet, understand that that's the response for a reason. Don't be deterred. Don't be discouraged when people deride you and make fun of you and, and, and accuse you of being hateful or bigoted or ignorant or whatever, whatever insult is in their empty quiver. Be confident, friends, that that is all they have. All they have to resort to is insult. And you have the truth. Don't forget that. So be bold in that truth and keep speaking it. Where is the promise of His coming? I think we've got time to get through this. They're mocking, following after their own lusts. Again, characteristic. Those who mock also look to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. They're not, they're not walking in the Spirit. They're not walking in power. They're just looking at this old fallen order and seeing, how can I delight the flesh? How can I fulfill these ungodly desires? How can I get a, a piece of these worldly delights? Following after their own lusts rather than the desires of God. Rather than desires of Christ the King. And of course, with those desires, with those mockings, they say, where is the promise 
of His coming. So that really is the substance of their mockery. Again, if what Jesus said is true, why doesn't He just come down here and show Himself and judge me if, if what He says is really true? See, there's the same thing happening today that happened back then. If God is truly this, if the Lord will truly judge, then let Him come down here. Let Him come down here. Where is the promise of His coming? So I think here we've established the time frame. We've settled that. Because if there was a problem with the time frame here, Peter would have corrected. Oh no, this is future. This is, a, this is in the far-flung future. No, if that was the case, Peter would have corrected that. But no, he understands that this is something that is looming. This is something that is fast approaching. Remember, the siege of Jerusalem, uh, I, I think I got this right historically, began in about AD 70. So we're looking at really a couple of years, really close to when that siege started. So the fact is that these, mark, these, these mockers are mocking because they are doubting the promise of Christ's return in judgment because the time frame from within which Christ would return was coming to a close. Remember, Jesus said, this generation, Matthew 24, we've got a bunch of passages to go through to kind of match all, put all of this together. But this, this is the word of Christ Himself. He said, I will return in judgment and this generation will see it. And so, that time frame is coming to a close. The apostles taught as much. Philippians 4.5, let your gentleness be apparent to all the Lord is near. Right? The Lord is near. His return is, is coming upon us. It's close. James 5.8-9, the judge is standing right at the door. It's like, are we really to take passages like this and say, oh, he didn't really mean that. It's in the future. It's all the more closer now because 2,000 years have gone by. No, understand it within the scope of the audience. But the Lord was coming. Even in the mind of James, he was coming to judge. 1 John 2.28, Now little children abide in him so that, when he ret- so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Even John expected. Right? And John was a later author. And yet, even he knew that the word of the Lord was true and was encouraging believers to persevere So keep on believing and not be those who are ashamed when the Lord does in fact turn up and you have found to be in unbelief. Let me say here, but there's a huge principle in all of this. This, where is the promise of His coming? It was a promise, right? The Lord's own reputation is staked on this promise that He would return. Here's the principle. Mockers and scoffers will use your Bible... Your Bible, a Bible they reject to make their point against you. They're doing it right here. Sometimes we forget that. that They have to hijack our biblical worldview to even make a point. But often they do. They will quote from our Scriptures, which they don't believe, and try to push it back on us. I'm saying, don't stand for that. Keep standing on the Word. But think about this. When When we preach the approaching judgment of God upon an unrepentant sinner, say, repent or die. You must believe the Gospel. Hey, I thought you guys were supposed to love one another. Who said that? Jesus said that. And they're hijacking it. I thought you guys were supposed to love one another, right? 
Well, your gospel isn't very loving. Hey, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Probably heard that one before. Probably not even canonical. Probably a later edition, by the way. We hear that one. So what are we supposed to do? We just, you know, see someone, see, see an old lady getting robbed, and you're like ready to jump in up. I, I can't judge. I'm not perfect. I'm not without sin. I can't be casting anything. I'm just going to turn a blind eye and walk away because who am I to judge that person by keeping them away from a defenseless person? <laughs> and the favorite, the all-time legendary favorite from Matthew 7. Hey, judge not. Judge not lest you be judged. Why don't you take the plank out of your own eye, mister? Why are you being all judgy here today? they're doing they're hijacking your scriptures don't let them do that (laughs) that's why it's so important to understand context and to have those responses but that's that's what we're facing that's the tactic they quote scripture so that you won't they quote scripture to shut you up they quote scripture to shame you they quote scripture to keep themselves in darkness And they quote Scripture to keep you from shining the light. And I'm simply saying, by way of application this morning, don't stand for that. You continue to stand on God's Word. You continue to stand on His promises. Especially the promise that He will judge unbelief. He will return to judge. And He will return to judge in spite of their unbelief. In spite of their mockery. So this is the promise of Christ's return. A return in judgment. And remember this word, we've used it before, this parousia. The the, the coming of Christ, right? Where is the promise of His coming? It's not simply an arrival or a termination of a journey, right? I've tried to establish before that when we say, the coming of the Lord, that we are in the age right now of the parousia. That Christ didn't judge Jerusalem and then jet. No, He is still presently judging the nations. He is still presently ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords and executing His reign over every tongue and tribe and nation. We have to keep emphasizing that because we don't want to think that somehow Jesus is is this king in exile. No, He is a present King exercising judgment as well as exercising His power to save the lost. So right now, we are living in light of that. This parousia, the presence of Jesus. In light of a generation that continues to call into question the Word of Christ Himself. And so He says, That's what they'll do. They will say this. Where is that promise of His coming? Where is that promise? See, people scoff the loudest before God judges the wicked and delivers His people from them. I want you to remember that. Just because someone says it so doesn't make it so. And just because someone denies it doesn't mean that that's so as well. It's only when God says something that we can say God has said it, that settles it. 
So when I say this to you, I'm trying to help you guard your hearts from shrinking back in shame or unbelief because some unbeliever comes and scoffs at what we hold so dear. Scoffs at the message we preach. Scoffs in the sense of calling in to question the promises of God. And when they do that, we simply reassure ourselves with those promises. But people scoff the loudest just before God judges the wicked. And we can see this turn into this rebellious cacophony of denial of Christ's promises. That's what's happening in this time that Peter is teaching, that he's writing. Same thing with Noah, right? 120 years building the ark, and then bam, the floods came. And I'm sure the scoffing grew. I'm sure the mockery on Noah grew. Why, Noah, are you building this 500-foot-long boat? What are you going to do with that? And I, you know, I, sometimes I, you know, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but sometimes I think, you know what, I bet even when people were drowning, they probably thought there's no way that boat's going to float. So profound is their unbelief. So hard-hearted is their rebellion. They don't even concede at the point of death. Right? Even Lot. Peter uses the example of Lot. Coming judgment. Even his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Hey, we've got to get out of the city. Oh, you're joking, Dad, right? No. Judgment is coming. All through the prophets, judgment on the city, judgment on the city. Repent, repent, turn to the Lord. He is merciful. He is gracious. He will forgive. Denial, denial, mockery, scoffing. A hatred of God and His Word. A hatred of any good news that God had to tell them. And just when they think they are safe, just when they think they are secure, just when they think that the prophets weren't worth their salt, the Assyrians come. And then the Chaldeans come. Jerusalem is raised to the ground. That's what's going to happen. But God's Word turns out true. And so Christians, when you faithfully stand for the Gospel, one of the most disheartening things that will happen is when people scoff at you. When they make fun of you and when they simply don't listen. Where is the promise of His coming? Where is the promise of His judgment? If there is a God in heaven and He is not judging me, then why should you? See, that is why well, that's one of the reasons people justify their sin and unbelief. Because if it were really so bad, right? If my, if my sexual perversion is so bad, if my paganism is so bad, if my infanticide is so bad, right? then where is my judgment? If all these if all these ways in which unbelieving society expresses its rebellion against God is not judged, then they ask, well, why should I repent? Why, why shouldn't I just keep on doing what I'm doing? Where is your God? That's what they ask. Where is your God? And at some point you may say, well, where is, where is my God? Don't be disheartened, guys really want to encourage you with that today because we are going to increasingly face opposition as we dig our heels in. I hate even using that term because it is the enemies of the gospel that should be digging their heels in against the gospel's assault. And yet we're always on the defensive. But let me close with this encouragement because I don't want you to be disheartened. I don't want you to think that we are defeated. So consider this. Consider our Savior. Consider Jesus on the cross. 
We brought this up before. What did he look like? When you see a man who claims to be the Savior of the world, the Son of Man, the Son of God, God come into flesh, anything where we can say, yes, this is Jesus, right? And suddenly, he looks helpless. He's hanging on a cross outside the city gates, rejected by his own people with a crown of thorns, naked before, naked before a, a mocking crowd who scoffed him. What would you think if you saw that situation? You would think, oh, all is lost. We've lost another one. Here came Jesus. He preached this great message. I thought he was it. I thought he was the son of God, but he died. See, that's what people saw, right? He was even mocked, Matthew 27, 40. You who are going to, listen to this, destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. See, fully reduced, that is what mockery comes to. Christian, save yourself. That's the message. Because as they dig in and try to relegate us to hopelessness, their ultimate claim will be, you do not have a Savior. There is no Jesus here. There is no Jesus to come. Right. Save yourself. And so they said to Jesus, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. If you're the Son of God. See that mockery, scoffing, blasphemy, wagging their heads at Him. You aren't who you said you were. And it looks like utter defeat. And yet, we read Colossians 2, 13-15, one of my favorite passages. It gives God's point of view. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. While his death looked like utter defeat, it was the most profound triumph imaginable because he disarmed all of his enemies. And guess what? We share in this victory. So if Christ has disarmed his enemies, guess what? He's disarmed our enemies. What more do we need to have courage and to stand fast in the truth of the Gospel? All we need is God's Word. All we need is His truth and to stand in it to be encouraged no matter what scoffers and mockers will say. We stand in Christ and we stand in His victory. We stand in His very promises. And they will come true and they have come true. So let us today refresh ourselves and resolve to live in light of that very victory. We'll stop there today and continue next Lord's Day. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and goodness to us. We thank You for this passage. We thank You, Lord, that we do not have to be deterred or discouraged because of, because of the mocking of unbelievers. Because of how they... They scoff at us. Lord, we don't have to be in fear or be in unbelief or doubt because Your promises are called into question. We can look at a passage like this, even this short, and say, You did keep Your Word. You did return in judgment. 
You did keep Your promise. And we can live in light not only of that fulfilled Word, but every other Word You've given us. Every other promise. Every other hope that we have. And we don't have to shrink back ashamed because of unbelief. Lord, we read about those those who scoff and those who try to make fun of these precious truths that we hold so dear. And I would pray, Lord, that You would give us a special love for our enemies. We know that it sometimes becomes difficult. And we know that even in that time, as Jesus said, the love of many would grow cold because of those things that were happening. And I pray that that would not be true of us. That we would keep fervent in our love, not only for one another, but even for the lost, that we would have a heart for them. That we would not be frustrated because of such rank, explicit unbelief. But that we would uh, continue to pronounce with equal fervor as we do with Your judgment, um, Your grace. But there is hope even for the vilest offender. But there is mercy for the one who, who will repent, who will come to You humbly and embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. Lord, I would pray too that if there are any in here today who do not believe that You would change their hearts, that You would grant them saving faith, that You would reveal Your Son and His saving work to them, that they would be raised to walk in newness of life. Um, to put Your power on display. Lord, we rejoice in the power of Your Gospel and we do rejoice also in Your promise to judge. We know that You are still executing that very office of judge. And we, and we praise You that You are a just and righteous God, that You won't wink at sin, that You will not allow iniquity to continue unabated, but that in Your own sovereign way, You even allow sin itself to glorify You. And when you de- especially when You defeat it once and for all. So we can rest in that hope this morning. Uh, may our hearts be full of rejoicing, and may we be may we be faithful to continue to praise you. And all this, Lord, we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.